Castillo league pinch hitting. And he will hit a ground ball towards short. Russell goes to Baez one. Over to first. The Cubs are going to the World Series. The Cubs win the pennant. This is a destination job. When you become the voice of the Chicago Cubs, you're there. You're where you can be comfortable for the rest of your career. Well, to be the very first Cubs announcer, and now, as you say, the only, uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely proud of that. It was, a, it was a wonderful honor to be in the seat calling that last play in Cleveland. The Chicago Cubs win the World Series. Pat Hughes will begin his 25th season when the season starts as the voice of the Chicago Cubs. Congratulations on that. And, Pat, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. You're very welcome, John. Nice to be with you. I am standing in my kitchen here in suburban Chicago looking out at the backyard. It's a glorious, sunny, beautiful spring day, and it would be perfect for a ball game at Wrigley Field. But the uh, pandemic is ongoing, and... Uh, that's the primary focus of everyone all around the world, really, right now. And baseball is kind of taking a back seat. Before we talk more about that, where would you be getting ready for a ball game right now? I'm not sure exactly where we were supposed to be on April 21st, to be honest with you. Um, if it was a day game at Wrigley, right now it's about 9 o'clock in the morning. I would be uh, probably researching a few items to use on the broadcast today and then I would get cleaned up and head to the ballpark at about 10 and uh, talk to a few people and get a little lunch and broadcast a ball game with my great partner Ron Coomer and um, it really is a blessing when you when you call a place like Wrigley Field your office I've been lucky enough to do that John for 25 years now it's an amazing place to work the atmosphere is always festive and upbeat and buzzing, especially when the Cardinals are in town. <laughs> there you go. So what does a, um, a, a sportscaster do when a sportscaster can't cast sports? Well, I stay very busy. I, uh, I work out a lot. We have a, a treadmill down in the basement and elastic bands, and I like to walk around. I do yard work in the backyard. I have a, a side business. It's called Baseball Voices. Um, Baseball Voices would be a series of audio CDs. They are commemorative audio tributes to baseball's greatest announcers. And I serve as the, the uh, writer, the producer, and the narrator. And we've put together 17 of those. And I know, John, you worked in the Bay Area in Northern California for many years. Um, Two of the CDs are Bay Area related. I just put one together a couple of years ago on John Miller, the great uh, voice of the Giants. And uh, about 10 years ago, we came out with a, a double CD on Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons. And uh, they've been very popular, and I've been very lucky to have that as an off-season job. And uh, so I've been devoting quite a bit of my spare time to my side business uh, during this pandemic. So, Pat, how, how much um, um, did Lon Simmons and, and Russ Hodges and the, the great voices in the Bay Area um, impact you as you were a, a young announcer thinking maybe one day I could be a baseball announcer? Well, I was, I was dreaming of that, John. I was never sure if I was going to make it. Um, 
I think they, they influenced me very much to directly answer your question. I think Bill King was uh, the biggest influence, but I think Ross Hodges and Lon Simmons, and then later on, uh, Al Michaels worked there for a little while. Lindsey Nelson worked there for a couple of years on Giants Radio. Hank Greenwald. Uh, the Bay Area has been blessed with so many great announcers, and now John Miller. But I think uh, the biggest influences would have been Bill King, and um, Vin Scully. I, I listened to Vin a lot growing up in Northern California. Uh, when the sun went down, you could not get Dodger games on radio during the daytime. But uh, when the darkness took over, you could tune in KFI, 6.40 a.m., and I could listen to the remarkable Vin Scully, who to this day I think is not only the best baseball announcer, but He's in a class by himself. I don't think anybody else is really close. So when you're sitting there listening to um, these announcers in San Jose, California, as you're growing up, and you're thinking you'd like to be a Major League Baseball announcer, are you calling the games? Are you thinking about how you would call the games? Are you thinking, I'm going to sit in Wrigley Field one day, I'm going to be in Dodger Stadium one day, and this is what I'm going to do? Actually, John, as a kid, I wanted to be a ball player. That was my... <laughs> primary focus, uh, like millions of other kids all over the world, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the shortstop for the Giants or the quarterback for the 49ers or the point guard for the Golden State Warriors. I played every sport. I played in uh, high school basketball and baseball. I played one year of college basketball. So I was a, I was a, a decent athlete, nothing great, but I enjoyed it. I loved it. I just like the feeling of being at a sporting event and competing and trying to win and being part of a team. I just enjoyed all of that. And to this day, um, I, I belong to a fitness club here in the area, and I go over and shoot baskets. I shoot 150 shots and run to the other end after every shot. And at my age, it's more like jogging and not running. But <laughs> I was a I was a guy that just loved sports, and I got to about the age of, I would say, 17 or 18, and you start kind of looking around at uh, the other athletes that you're competing against, especially when I got to college. I noticed, I thought, you know, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to be good enough to be in the NBA. There's nothing, there's no shame in that. Uh, the NBA is for the elite ball players, and just like the NFL and Major League Baseball, not everyone can be an elite player. So I thought the next best thing to being a ball player might be to be a play-by-play -play announcer. You would still be involved with the game. Um, you would travel a lot. You would be at exciting ballparks covering big-time sporting events. So I thought I'd give that a shot. <clears throat> My older brother, John, was already in college at that time, and he was into broadcasting, and I would say he was a huge influence on me because he worked at a station called KSJS, which was the college radio station there at San Jose State University. And he really helped me get started. Um, he was doing play-by-play -play of uh, radio of Spartan football. And uh, he let me do sideline reporting as a freshman. So that really was the beginning of it. And then I started doing uh, basketball play-by-play -play soon thereafter. And I was completely dedicated to becoming the, the best play-by-play -play man that I could possibly be, knowing that the competition is severe in our business, and it still is, and it always will be, because 
when you start looking around, you, you look at 30 major league teams, there are two radio announcers for each team. That's 60 radio jobs in baseball at the big league level at any given time. 60 out of probably 600,000 guys who would like to do it. So I, I knew the competition was going to be intense, um, but I thought I'd give it a try. And I've been very fortunate and started off in the minor leagues and uh, just kept listening to what I did and trying to smooth out the rough edges and polish things that I liked and eliminate things that I would listen to that I did that I didn't like. And it was a process, but here I am. And this is going to be my 38th year consecutively in big league baseball. Fabulous. Fabulous. We're chatting with Pat Hughes, the voice of the Chicago Cubs. I'm John Schrader, and this is watch the media. Uh, before we leave San Jose, I want to talk quickly about the pre-ESPN television world. Um, you worked with a guy named Bob Murphy, who was a Bay Area legend when you were young on the local sports channel. It's almost like access television at this point. It seemed like it, I suppose. But what was that like? Because when you were very young, you were doing television in, in the nascent days of sports television on cable right absolutely john and i was just thinking about that the other day espn television began i believe in the fall of 1979 if mm. i'm not mistaken that's correct yeah and right and uh nobody had ever heard of it and um i actually was on espn nationwide at the age of 24 uh broadcasting things like the cable car the cable car classic uh, San Jose State played Virginia, and they upset the Ralph Sampson-led Virginia Cavaliers. And I was the voice, not that anyone was listening uh, or would remember that, but I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and it was a great upset, and it was a great thrill for me to be doing games on national television at that age. It was terrifying, but then again, not that many people had access to ESPN in the early days. Um, but Murphy, uh, Murphy was a very interesting character, very funny. Uh, I learned a lot from Bob. I enjoyed his company. We had a good time together. He did the color. I did the play by play. And, uh, I learned a lot from Bob. Um, he was, he was very good with people. He had great people skills. He was an excellent uh, speaker. Um, uh, he was almost like a stand-up comedian if you ever saw him perform mm -hmm. as a master of ceremonies. So I learned some things in that regard. He just had a real quick wit about him. He was, uh, and he was a good athlete. He played minor league ball. He was a, a pitcher at Stanford, and he got into uh, minor league baseball for a little while. Um, so I, I, I learned a lot about sports and a lot about people and a lot about comedy from, from Bob Murphy. So in the early 80s, you make a quick stop off in Minnesota, and then you get to Milwaukee, and you start a 12-year run working in Milwaukee as, a, as an announcer with uh, Bob Euchre. Now, I suppose Murphy's days in San Jose helped to set you up for Bob Euchre's days uh, in Milwaukee. And I know you've been asked this a million times, but uh, what was it like as a, as a very young baseball announcer working with a guy who really – uh, exceeded, went beyond baseball. He had a television sitcom, for goodness sakes, Bob Uecker. Uh What was that like? Yeah, it was, it was a very uh, interesting experience. I learned a lot from Euchre, just as I did from Murphy. 
Um, but getting back to um, the San Jose and the transition to the Midwest from sure. there, there was a guy by the name of John Petrie that uh, worked uh, on a special for Bob Hosfeld's daughter. I'm going to say her name was uh, Jenny, possibly. That doesn't sound right. Jenny Lynn, maybe. Anyway, she was going to be performing, and the producer had to bail out for whatever reason, and John Petrie was called in at the last minute to be the producer of this show. He did a good job, and then his friend called him to come back to Columbus, Ohio. So I met John Petrie, and he and I became friends, and he was a great sports fan, and he seemed to like the work that I did. As soon as he gets hired back in Columbus, he calls me to be his new sports director. So that's how unusual our business can work sometimes. Um, had the other guy not left as the producer of the show for that, that young lady, I never would have met John Petrie, and I maybe never would have left San Jose. So it's just odd the way things work out. I still talk to John. He's uh, retired now, living in North Carolina. But um, So I worked at uh, Warner MX Cube for about three years from 19, oh, about 1981 until 1983, a couple of years at least. And uh, I did Columbus Clippers baseball at that point. And George Sisler Jr., the son of the Hall of Famer, was the general manager in Columbus. He liked the work that I did, and he recommended me for a big league job. And the Minnesota Twins called. Calvin Griffith, the late Calvin Griffith, and his family owned the Twins at that time, and they were starting a television venture with 50 Twins games and 50 Minnesota North Star hockey games. It was called Spectrum Sports. So they hired me there, and that was my first big league game. So that was that was a major breakthrough to... Uh, to become a big league announcer at the age of 27, covering the Minnesota Twins on television. The first game I ever saw, John, first game I ever did, opening night 1983, Jack Morris beat the Twins. I think the final was 11-3. to But in the top of the first inning, Larry Herndon hit a three-run homer for the Tigers. Um, the Tigers would score six runs in the top of the first inning of my first big league game. So I, I got a, um, you know, a, a difficult baptism <laughs> right away <laughs> that maybe this isn't going to be the easiest job in the world. And then from there, I found out about the opening in Milwaukee to do the radio. And that's when I worked with Euchre starting in 1984, a, a man by the name of Bill Haig, the uh, director of broadcasting for the Brewers, hired me. And uh, that was also a huge uh, break for me to become a full-time baseball announcer, uh, doing every game on radio with Euchre. And, and I learned a lot. I, I knew nothing, um, you know, as far as baseball, really the inside of baseball, until you hang around somebody who has, uh, played the game or until you watch a full season and you hang around with the players and you travel with them, you really don't know the game. You learn more and more about it with each passing day and each passing year. But when you're first starting out, you, you think you might know the game. You really don't. And, and people who um, have never been in the game or covered the game on a daily basis, they really don't know the game. There's so much nuance and so many details and so much about technique. And um, it's, it's a very 
simple game on the surface, baseball, but it's an extremely complicated game when you get down below the surface. You know, all of us who do sports um, and I broadcast sports, at some point the light kind of goes on over our head and say, okay, I get it, because you really have to sort of feel the game, I think. At what point do you remember, did you say to yourself or did you realize, I'm a big league announcer, I belong here? I don't think there was any one moment, John. That's a great question. It's more of a gradual feeling that I think just uh, you you learn more and there's a layer of knowledge here and a layer of knowledge there that you pick up and you do a thousand games and then you interview guys for pregame shows. I did pre and postgame shows in Milwaukee as well as three innings of play-by-play. Now, in, in that format in Milwaukee, it was a one-man job. Uh, that was Euchre's call, and Euchre did his six-inning solo, and I did my three innings solo. Occasionally, we would be on the air together, but primarily it was a one-man gig. Um, now, in Chicago, when I got the job there, that became a two-man gig at all times, and Ron Santo was my partner there. But um, getting back to answer your question, I don't think there was any one moment I do know that Bob Uecker had a television series, Mr. Belvedere, and so he would be gone uh, recording that program, and I would be left to do the number one job, which was six innings of play-by-play every game, and you're opening it up, and you're doing the first couple of innings, and you're doing the last couple, and the uh, the middle two, and the you know fifth and sixth innings. I, I love that, and um, so I, I felt like when when he was away and I could be the so-called number one guy, that became my new goal. I wanted to be the number one guy because I, I really enjoyed it. I feel like I grew a lot at that time. And I was there for 12 years, so I, I learned a lot. And during that time, I got married, and we had two kids. And uh, and then you get to a point where you think, you know, I, I, I might have to start making a little more money. <laughs> and... Um, that's when I started looking around because I knew Euchre was not going anywhere. He still hasn't. He's, uh, I think Bob is beginning this season is going to be his 50th year uh, of broadcasting in Milwaukee. So I knew he wasn't going to go anywhere. He's a Milwaukee native and a, a legend there in the Derry State. But um, I, I became aware of the Cubs opening at the end of the 95 season. I applied along with another 200 people. Um, and then, you know, to make a long story short, I was hired uh, in late November of 1995 to be the voice of the Cubs. And I've been stuck in that same dead end gig ever since. <laughs> dead end, dead end. Pat Hughes, <laughs> yeah, Pat Hughes is the voice of the Cubs. I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media. When they finally say that, I mean, you're talking about one of the handful of iconic sports brands in America, not just baseball, but sports brands in America. And when you got that job, they said, yes, it's yours. Do you recall the feeling you had? Absolute elation, uh, jubilation. Uh, I felt like I had um, achieved something, you know, quite um, remarkable to be, you know, coming from Branham High School in San Jose to becoming the voice of the Chicago Cubs. That's a big jump. And um, you never know how long you're going to last. But I, I held on to that uh, job with, with a firm grip. And, and I 
wanted to do my very best, and I still do. I don't take any broadcast lightly. I try to be prepared every day, try to you know work with management, uh, try to work with my partners. I try to make the broadcast as entertaining and as informative as I possibly can every day. Yeah, when I got this job, John, I, I also made the statement, I think, in the opening press conference, something like, I don't consider this job a stepping stone to something else. This is a destination job. When you become the voice of the Chicago Cubs, you're there. You're where you can be comfortable for the rest of your career. Now, I had that knowledge when I got the job, and I still feel the exact same way. I, I, am not, I have not sent out any audition tapes. I couldn't care less what other jobs are open. This is my job. I'm going to hold on to it for as long as I can. And I'm not going to go forever, but I'm 64 right now. I still feel healthy. Um, and as long as I'm healthy and able to do it, this team has been so amazingly entertaining in the last five years. And I have this great new partner, Ron Coomer. I say new, it's our seventh year together. But I had 15 wonderful years with Ron Santo, three with Keith Moreland. And now this is going to be seven with Coomer. And we got to cover the world championship, John, in 2016, one of the great thrills of my lifetime. So you are the radio announcer ever for the Chicago Cubs who has uttered the words, the Cubs win the World Series. I'm, I'm sure you've thought of that. To... I'm sure you've been reminded of that a million times. But that must be kind of an awing feeling mm -hmm. to know that nobody else has ever done that particular thing. A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. And the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs come pouring out of the dugout. Jumping up and down like a bunch of delirious 10-year-olds. The Cubs have done it. Well, to be the very first Cubs announcer, and now, as you say, the only. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely proud of that. It was a... It was a wonderful honor to be in the seat calling that last play in Cleveland. The Chicago Cubs win the <laughs> World Series or something to that effect. Yeah. And uh, it was it was nerve wracking, but it was so glorious. And um, boy, I, I, I just um, I was so proud to uh, just to be there and to be in that position. Um People said, were you thinking about Ron Santo? Because Ronnie was like the number one Cub fan, in addition to a Cubs Hall of Fame ball player. Mm -hmm. uh, he loved the Cubs, and people knew that he loved the Cubs. And people were asking, were you thinking about Santo during Game 7? And I said, well, I, I think about Ron Santo every day anyway. Uh, he and I were good friends. We had 15 memorable years together. So, yes, I was thinking about Ron Santo. But I was also thinking of people like Ernie Banks and Harry Carey and Jack Brickhouse. And mainly, John, I was thinking about the millions of Cub fans who never got a chance to experience what I did and what all of us did on that glorious night in Cleveland, Ohio, back in 2016. And so it was it was very emotional. Um, but, uh, you know, you just... You're a trained broadcaster. You do the best you can. And uh, I can live with the way it turned out. I, I wanted to be under control. 
uh, on the moment when I made the final call uh, because I did not want to be hysterical and emotional to the point where my voice cracked. Uh, I didn't have any interest in that. So I wanted it to be clear, and, uh, and, it, and it turned out okay. And it wasn't as though you had a, a lot of time to think about it, and I, and I uh, know people ask this question all the time, big moments, do you know exactly what you're going to say? Well, yes and no, you, you, you're trained to do this, but it wasn't as though you had a whole game's worth to think about this. It wasn't a 10 nothing game going to the ninth inning. This was a dramatic game and at a stoppage, and it goes into extra innings. I mean, it, was, it had its so many moments there that it was never assured in those four hours that you were going to get to call that. Uh, last play that's a that's a great point john and i think only somebody in the business like yourself would have that particular insight so i i appreciate you saying that uh four hours and 28 minutes to be exact um, the time of the game um yeah i tell people when they ask me that i say well first of all as a radio announcer unlike television you have to be true to your radio audience you have to make the final call and uh, explain what transpired on the field. TV announcers maybe can be a little more um, uh, separated from that because the pictures show the audience what's happening. And if they want to think of something clever or fancy to say, that's that's their business. Radio, you can't do that. You've got to make that last call, which I did. And I, I point out the two scenarios, and you made a reference to it just a moment ago. Let's 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 uh, talk about two baseball games. One, it's twelve to nothing Cubs in the ninth inning. The other is a cliffhanger in the tenth inning, like the one we saw in Cleveland. Now, those are two completely different feelings at the ballpark, and it's a different feeling as a broadcaster uh, in those two different games too. So, if you thought of something real clever to say, it might have been very appropriate for one of those two scenarios but completely inappropriate for the other. So I did not want to script out anything, um, you know, something about uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to get out the the Chicago Cubs, win the World Series. Then I said, um, the Cubs come pouring out of the dugout, jumping up and down like a bunch of delirious 10-year-olds. And then I said, the Cubs have done it, and the longest – drought in the history of American sports is over and the celebration begins as I listen back to it. Two down. Cubs lead by a run. Tying run at first. Martinez at the plate. Bryant guards the line at third. Here we go. Montgomery's pitch. A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. And the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs come pouring out of the dugout. Jumping up and down. Like a bunch of delirious 10-year-olds, the longest drought in the history of American sports is over, and the celebration begins. I probably should have said the longest championship drought, uh, you know, just to Mm -hmm. critique myself. And I said the Cubs have done it. I had absolutely no recollection of even saying that because of the, the, the excitement of the moment, Uh, the uh, dramatic uh, circumstance where you had the tying run on base and the potential winning run at the plate. And it was just a crazy, wonderful, exciting baseball game. So all things considered, 
uh, I think I did okay. Yeah, I think I think so too. Pat Hughes, voice of the Cubs, is with us. I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media. Try to characterize for us, if you could, the relationship a, a radio announcer has with the fans, with the Cubs fans. Well, I think that um, I think Cub fans, uh, regarding ball players and broadcasters, first of all, they want to know you are giving them your best effort every single time. They love when a player hustles, and uh, they they sense that they they are really into the details of the game. Extremely knowledgeable fans, so I think they appreciate the fact that I give them everything I've got each game. Um, and then I think they like to laugh and we do like to have fun. Ron Coomer and I, and Ron Santo and I, and, uh, anybody I work with, I think you, you really should laugh and have fun at the ballpark. It's a fun place to be. It always has been for me. And if you don't laugh out loud, and I mean some good belly laughs every single day, when you go to a ball game, I think you're missing the point. It's a fun place to be. And it always has been for me. And it always will be. So I, I think they like to laugh. I think they like to um, that they like the um, consistency. I think of a broadcast, and there are certain things I do that are predictable every single day. I I give the uniform descriptions, and I give the dimensions and the the height of the outfield wall wherever we are, and they seem to like that. But um, I think really it's just. You know, and I, I I would never turn anyone down for an autograph. Um, so I try to be as nice as I can to fans up to a point. Uh, if they start taking too much of your time and you have to go to work, sometimes you have to cut them short. But after a game, if I'm heading to my car and there are people who want me to sign things, I always stop. And, and I, I don't think I would ever turn down anyone for that. So I don't know. I, I feel like we have a very strong bond. It's a very special bond, and um, and that's something I don't take lightly at all. Okay, Pat, I'm going to invoke my wife in this conversation now very briefly. Um, she's driving across country with our son, Ben, who now actually lives in Chicago with his family. And, um, and she said, we're listening to the radio, and Pat Hughes is calling the Cubs games. And the guy he's working with, Ron Santo, unbelievable, in the middle of the a play is a home run call, and he's going, oh, no, not again. He'd throw this pitch, right? So explain to us a little bit about working with Ron Santo, who when I was growing up, I thought, man, he's one of the great players. I admired him when I was growing up watching him play and then listening to him broadcast. You can hear his passion. Of course, he's now not, no longer with us. Um, but he, uh, but you worked with him, and, and generally as play-by-play -play announcers, we don't want somebody talking over us or, 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 or inserting themselves in the call. Bottom of the 11th, Cubs at first and second, but the only man that counts is DeRosa, leading at second base. And the 2-0 from Wilson. Johnson, it's a ground ball, right side, base hit, right field. DeRosa heading home, the throw by Burris to the plate, the slide, he scores! Cubs win, Cubs win, Cubs win 8-7. Reed Johnson with a ground ball, single into right field. Mark DeRosa sliding in feet first, just ahead of the tag of Molina. Cubs win 8-7. What a finish. But he did that all the time. What was it like working with him in that respect? 
That in that respect, that was difficult, John. Yeah, I, I won't tell you that I enjoyed that. I did not. Uh, I did not make a big issue of it. Uh, I felt really that that was more of a management call than my call. And uh, you know, we had discussions. Uh, Ronnie just couldn't help himself. That was part of him. So I learned to live with it. Um, but did I like it? Not necessarily. It, it didn't. Um, it, it didn't drive me crazy or anything like that as far as anger. But uh, in a in a perfect world, no, the, the color announcer should not be stepping on the line of the play-by-play man. You can only hear one voice at a time. Having said that, Santo <laughs> was there before you were there, and he was um, a, a Cubs legend, uh, a Cubs man, deeply um, beyond anything I think we could probably understand, right? Absolutely. And and I had come from Milwaukee where Bob Euchre was a huge name and figure and presence uh, in Wisconsin. And then Santo, like you said, John, one of the biggest sports names in the history of Chicago sports. Uh, and there's about 10 of them, you know, Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and uh, Gail Sayers and Dick Butkus. And, um, you know, there are a few. Uh, and then with the Cubs, you've got Arnie Banks and Ryan Sandberg and Billy Williams and Fergie Jenkins. But Santo's right in that mix. And like I said, there's about 10 to 12 names, Bobby Hall and Stan Makita in hockey. Um, but Santo is certainly part of that group. So whenever you uh, think about getting into any kind of a, a disagreement or confronting somebody like that, you got to kind of step back and say, there's no way you can win this battle. And I've noticed that. Like, he started Bellhorn off with looked like a 90-mile-an-hour fastball and then came back with about an 86. See that lady with the chocolate cake? Ooh, that looked good. Was that on the TV monitor? Yeah, it was just on the monitor. What's your favorite cake? I mean, if you were to have a birthday cake, right? what would you ask for? Strawberry? I I love carrot cake. Oh, love carrot cake. One yeah. ball and two strikes. I do too. Huh? I, I do too. But Mark usually Bill they Moore. don't give carrot cakes for birthdays. Here's the next offering. Fouled away. One and two. Let me put it this way. Usually birthday cakes will have strawberries. I know you love strawberries. Love them? I mean, you'll take every strawberry that you can get your hands on and don't care about the rest of the people. No, I always hand. leave at least one strawberry. Yeah, at least one. But anyway, I love a vanilla and chocolate frosting cake. Do you like chocolate and vanilla? Like an angel food? No. There's a fastball outside, two and two. Angel food cake is is a sponge-type cake. And you don't like that? I'm not crazy about it, but I'm asking you about two types of cakes. (laughs) I'm asking you... Two balls and two strikes. Did you say a vanilla cake? Yeah, vanilla, like a white cake... Here's the 2-2 pitch to Bellhorn. It's outside, 3-2. And And chocolate frosting. Or a chocolate cake and vanilla frosting. See, when I hear vanilla, I think ice cream instead of cake. And I'm I'm not trying to be difficult here. Okay, white frosting. (laughs) 3-2 on Bellhorn. Evidently, you don't have a choice. Curveball got him looking. Strike three called. Bellhorn. Perhaps he was thinking about cakes at that moment. Yeah. One away, and here's Machado. Wasn't thinking of that curveball that time, that's for sure. How about a nice, rich German chocolate cake? That's a chocolate 
cake with chocolate frosting. I didn't ask you that. Why don't you answer? All you got to say is, which one do you like? You mentioned Harry Carey and uh, Jack Brickhouse. Hey, hey, Cubs. Hey, hey, Jack Brickhouse, right? Um, where does Pat Hughes fit in with that group now in the lore of Chicago Cubs? It's not really for me to say, John. Uh, that would be anybody else's opinion but mine. I'm, I'm going to just keep on keeping on doing my best every day, and I'll let those uh, comparisons fall where they may. Um, I'm still active, as they say, and I'm still working and, and making calls. I, I got to do that World Series. I would love to do another one, um, but I, I could not say where I fit in in that, uh, in that group. few years ago you had a, a, a health scare with uh, dysplasia um, on your on your throat um, and some surgeries to to repair that uh, what was that experience like and is it completely uh, are you completely healthy in that respect it was scary uh, it's never going to go away dysplasia is one of those insidious diseases that comes and goes and you don't know when it will come back I'm going to knock on wood it has not uh, returned for about two years now. I have a great surgeon, Dr. Andrew Friedman, um, but uh, it's it only affects about 10,000 people in the world at any one time. It's a precancerous growth on your vocal cords, and so you can imagine how precise the surgical procedure is to get in there and try to remove the precancerous tissue and not uh, interfere with the actual vocal cords. So it takes a guy who really knows what he's doing. And I've had that surgery done four times now, but, um, knock on wood, I feel good. And I'm ready to keep on going. Seems crazy, doesn't it? That it would happen to somebody whose, uh, career, whose life, whose business, whose job depends on, uh, his ability to uh, speak and speak for hours and hours at a time every day. Well, I think possibly uh, that is is one of the reasons that it did happen, because I have used it so extensively. They don't know for sure. Um, Roger Daltrey, the great lead singer for The Who, also had dysplasia and still has it, I assume. Um, but again, it's a very uncommon thing. And, um, you, you know, I don't sit around thinking, geez, of all the of all the luck, you know, here I am a broadcaster and and now I have this disease. I just deal with it. I uh, have surgery whenever you, you have to. And, um, you know, try to take care of yourself. I don't drink. I don't smoke. Uh, I try to work out and stay in shape. So um, I, I, don't, I don't sit around feeling sorry for myself. I really don't. I have too much to be thankful for. If you could describe what is the coolest part about your job, um, your uh, work, uh, what would it be? Just the fact that I get to do something that I was striving for as a very young person, uh, I have achieved that success. Uh, I'm able to pay all my bills. Both of my daughters went to good colleges, and, and now they're out in the real world, and, and they're doing fine. Um, 
I, I think that um, I, my mom just passed away about a month ago, and she would always tell me, she would say, Pat, I'm so proud of you because you've brought so much joy to so many people. And, you know, that that really makes you feel good when your mom says that. And But, I mean, a lot of other people have said that. They say, we, we love listening to you guys. And uh, you make us laugh and, you know, you, you keep us informed. We always know what's going on in the game. And um, I have a lot of young people, John, that tell me, they went into broadcasting because of me. And that's a very sweet thing to hear and very humbling. And uh, so, you know, to repeat what I've said already, I don't take it lightly. I don't take any game or any performance lightly. Uh, and I never will. And and if I get to a point where I can't do something near my best, I'm going to have to walk away. But I, I feel like I've, I've done a lot of things right. Um, it gives me great pleasure when other broadcasters, people I respect, uh, tell me that they like what I do. And, and that's a very special thing, too. They don't have to do that. Uh, and when one broadcaster compliments the other, you know there's a, a certain element of sincerity involved. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your mom's passing, but what a nice way to sort of wrap up this with sentiments about what we do. I mean, we're not curing cancer we're not fixing people's vocal cords we're not um you know we're not out there the first people who run into a burning house but sometimes we do have to be reminded that what we do gives people pleasure and what we do uh, makes people's lives uh, different and better oftentimes and what a nice way uh, for your mother to remind us all of that thanks i think john um the phrase that i sometimes use i think uh, baseball and sports in general, and if, if the broadcast is done in a proper manner and it's fun and it's detailed and, you know, there's uh, elements of excitement and drama in it, as sporting events often do, um, I think it's really one of the most wholesome forms of escapism that has ever been really invented um, because it kind of takes you out of your own problems when you're listening to a game. When I used to listen to Bill King or Lon Simmons or Russ Hodges, uh, and I would listen to them, I was completely involved in their voice and their description and thinking about Willie Mays or thinking about Rick Barry. And uh, it, it, was, it was a form of escapism. And I, I think that's really what we provide, a wholesome form of escapism. Well, congratulations on uh, everything. Uh, 25 years now uh, in Chicago and uh, going strong. And uh, thanks again, Pat, for the time. I've enjoyed it very much. John, you're very welcome. It's nice to catch up after all these years. It has been a while, yeah. And I suppose all of our friends in San Jose would be disappointed if I didn't say go Spartans, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I haven't, I haven't been to a Spartan game in and eons, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, but when you when you no longer live there, it's a little more difficult, yeah. and uh, I, I work awfully hard. But I, there's always a part of San Jose State in my veins at all times. All right, Pat, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Sure, John. My pleasure. You take care. Pat Hughes, the voice of the Chicago Cubs. I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media.